Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and for this fourth season, I'll be interviewing leaders, forward thinkers, and entrepreneurs from around the world to explore the opportunities, challenges, and rewards of working in clean tech, and more specifically within hydrogen. We'll be hearing from individuals with very different focuses within hydrogen, but with one clear goal of how we can fuel a cleaner, greener future. In addition, they'll be offering you some tokens of wisdom to enlighten, engage, and inspire everyone to live their purpose every single day. So today's guest brings a whole new perspective on hydrogen, one from the world of consultancy. After a successful decade with Glencore, where he was the senior VP of commercial for North America, Reese made a monumental decision to pivot his career, move continents, move roles, move companies, and he joined OCI to manage their transition from grey to green. This led on to the jump from industry into, some people might say, the dark side of consulting, but it seems to be working out for him. Uh, Reese is now an associate part of Energy Transition at the brilliant PA Consulting, and hopefully is very happy with that decision. So, Welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, Reese. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Jenny. It's good to be here, and I'm indeed very happy with my uh, transition. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, just to kick off with a bit of background, um, over to you to tell your kind of story of who you are and, and how your career brought you to where you are today. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, I, I guess first and foremost, I'm a father of two. Um, I have a, a little boy who's uh, just uh, had his second birthday and a little girl who is uh, three months old uh, in a couple of days' time. So they keep me very, very busy, as does my wife. I'm, uh, I'm Australian, uh, but I live in the UK and I've lived abroad for quite some time now. My journey to this spot, I suppose, was driven by uh, my, uh, my career. I, I started out with uh, Macquarie uh, in Australia. Uh, I actually started working for them in Brisbane, Australia, then moved to Sydney, Australia with them before I made the decision to transfer into commodities uh, and started working with Glencore, again in the uh, the Sydney office, um, where I did a multitude of things. But uh, after the acquisition of Extrata, uh, which doubled the size of Glencore, I, I started helping with the integration of the Extrata assets, uh, as well as helping to develop new trading businesses businesses um, for the new commodities that were uh, uh, inherited uh, as part of that extractor acquisition. And that kind of led me over to Switzerland, where, my, where I met my wife, and then later to North America, um, where I helped um, integrate the, uh, the office in Toronto and, uh, and develop trading books uh, over there and eventually becoming the Senior VP of Commercial um, for North America. And, uh, and, and that's basically what I was doing uh, when I left, COVID hit and uh, my wife fell pregnant with our first and we decided that we needed to change. So came over first to Switzerland for six months and then to the UK um, where I started working for OCI. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, they, they wanted to transi- transition from grey to green. They're a very, very large producer of ammonia and methanol globally. And so I helped design uh, 
market entry uh, strategies, um, develop markets that don't exist today for, for green ammonia and, uh, and, and green methanol, um, develop projects, uh, infrastructure, uh, partnerships, all those kind of things. Um, and uh, I, after doing that for a couple of years, uh, that kind of made me a veteran in the, um, the industry, given that the industry is very, very young. Uh, so uh, it was at that point that I um, started discussions with PA uh, and uh, made the transition shortly after. Brilliant. Good story. <laughs> it's certainly a long one. No, but I always like to hear of people that have worked in so many different countries and had so many different experiences. And I think doing the industry side into consulting is one a lot of people do follow that path, but I think it's something that intrigues people as to how that works. And you're, you know, a good stint now in at PA. How's the transition been and, and what does it feel like to be in that world of consultancy? Look, it's, it's certainly a, a bit of a different world from uh, the one that I was used to, um, but it's, it's good. It's stimulating. Uh, it's exciting to be able to work on such a diverse range of different projects and, and to solve um, a diverse range of, of um, problems. You know, I, I have specialist knowledge in, in an understanding around. So, I mean, one of the motivating factors that brought me across was, you know, I, I, I do believe in climate change and, uh, and I do want to do something to, to help that. That's primarily why I wanted to transition into a more um, uh, environmentally oriented role when I uh, moved to the UK and, and, and found myself at OCI. And given the infancy of uh, the markets and the, the way that they're developing in, around green hydrogen and, and, and hydrogen derivatives, um, I decided that I could have much more impact working at a consultancy where I can help so many other players to develop um, and, and, and push the sector ahead versus just working at one company. Uh, and whilst I was having a very impactful um, uh, role there, you know, there were first movers and, and we were doing a lot of fantastic things. Um, it, it still, uh, in my mind, was a, a little bit restricted because, um, you know, the market was still very much in early stage and, and so much more needed to happen on a broader scale uh, to, uh, to, to have those markets go ahead. Uh, the, the tide lifts all boats, as they say. Uh, so, you know, that's why I wanted to come across and, and I'm excited to be uh, working in that space and contributing here. Amazing. Um, and I think it's, it's very apparent you've taken your career into your own hands. And I know from previous discussions that you worked on some self-improvement and how, however you want to badge it up, but some training and, and really navigated that process by supporting it through self-study. Um, so can you share a bit about that? Yeah. Um, so uh, in and around COVID, uh, I suppose right before COVID and, and right after when I started thinking about transitioning out of my role with Glencore, I wanted to open up uh, the maximum amount of opportunities for myself. So I completed a CFA the, the year before COVID, um, actually did it in a rather condensed period, which was a little bit overwhelming, but I managed it. And then uh, when COVID hit uh, and, and I found myself with much less travel, <laughs> I uh, took advantage of that and um, uh, studied a postgraduate certificate in uh, energy and finance, which then enabled me to, uh, to go and apply for uh, those different roles in those sectors that I was looking to transition into. Awesome. 
And I think more people should do that. I think it's one of those things that often you've got that goal and ambition, but it just gets gets pushed to the side because life gets busy. So I guess it was an opportunity in time. Absolutely. Life gets in the way. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you need to prioritize the things that are important in your life and, and, and have a long term perspective. So, you know, I, I think you always make room for the things that are important. And at that stage, um, you know, I was considering a family with my wife, but uh, wanted to provide a better base um, for us to move forward and, and, and leave Canada. So it was an opportunity for me to take that step, knuckle down for uh, four or five months um, and, uh, and complete that CFA. And then uh, I suppose it was just a little bit serendipitous that uh, COVID hit and gave me more time to, uh, to do a second phase of study. Um, so, you know, you take advantage of those opportunities when they present themselves. Mm-hmm. Great. And you mentioned earlier that kind of view on the energy transition and the belief in climate change. Um, and I guess you've got quite a unique view having worked in most corners of the world. But how do you think having that experience in living in different continents has shaped that view? Um, it, it certainly gives you a perspective uh, outside of just, you know, the, the, the narrow bubble that you live in on a day to day basis. Um, so I, I've been fortunate to have worked um, in, uh, you know, in Australia, in Europe uh, and in North America, but I've also worked with uh, a lot of companies in uh, other countries and, and continents uh, in, in North Africa, in Asia. So I've got a pretty global perspective these days. Um, and certainly, you know, when you think about how our energy transition needs to evolve, at the end of the day, we've got one sky. It doesn't matter if the UK should um, exceed everyone else's progress and, and do a fantastic job. It's not really going to do anything for climate change. We need a global adoption of greener practices and, um, and, and, and those that help to uh, minimise carbon emissions and, and keep those uh, carbon molecules in the ground. So it's not going to happen in every single country around the world simultaneously. It needs uh, time to develop in those countries that are leading the way for everyone else. Uh, and, and then hopefully once uh, the model has been refined a little bit, it can be adopted on a broader scale. And, and that's what we're, we're trying to achieve today. I mean, Europe is leading the way, I think. Um, the US is fast catching up with some of their policies and, and some of their developments. Um, and, then, uh, and then there are countries in Asia who are also um, starting to move ahead. It's not nearly enough, but it's a start. And, uh, and hopefully, if you and I were having this same conversation in 10 years' time, Jenny, I mean, hopefully we'd be talking about it in a different tone. I really do hope so. And I guess right now, as as we're recording, COP27 is well underway. So by the time this episode comes out, it will be a couple of weeks in the past. But hopefully at that point, there'll be some really clear, positive actions that come out of it that could impact across the globe. Definitely. Um, it's, uh, it's events like that that um, set a benchmark for everyone else to follow. And, and, and there's obviously a lot of announcements that are made around those COP events. So, you know, hopefully this is an opportunity for the world to take another leap forward and, um, and, and for governments to uh, start to structure their policy in a way that can help 
push things forward because, I mean, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of individuals, we have a lot of companies who want to take a proactive voluntary approach. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it's not enough in the grand scheme of things. You do need for governments to lead the way. Yeah, I agree. And so talking about making an impact, I think it'd be really helpful to for the listeners to understand more about what your day-to-day looks like, the sorts of projects you're working on, viability, getting those projects across the line and how you work with your end clients to make sure that what they're doing is impactful. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I d- working on a variety of different things, um, you know, quite commonly I'm, I'm working with project developers to try to help them develop viable business cases so that they can get their projects uh, past financing and, and, and get some spades in the ground. Um, that helps to bring supply online and, and then, you know, it, it helps for um, uh, consumers to adopt those green products. Um, I'm also helping uh, on, on the consumer side with uh, companies who want to try to adopt uh, these uh, green hydrogen or green hydrogen derivatives within their processes. Um, there's a lot of technological um, advancements that need to happen there. Uh, the sector needs time to mature, but I'm, I'm happy to be helping those who want to try to carve out the way for everyone else to follow. And uh, we're, we're doing some exciting things there as well. Um, also on uh, regulatory or pseudo, pseudo government, I, I suppose you would say, um, sectors where we we help uh, large uh, regulatory bodies design uh, frameworks that will uh, help enable the adoption going forward. So, you know, all these things coming together in, in various different continents around the world, by the way, um, are hopefully sh- helping to shape the way um, for everyone to move forward. Amazing. And I think it's it's safe to say you're a big advocate of hydrogen. Um, and something that always comes up in these discussions is how new the technology is. And lots of the technology that we're used to using in day to day life has been around for a long time or, you know, there's incremental change. But hydrogen technology or most of it is, is very new. Um, so for those of our listeners that don't know as much about hydrogen, can you give them a bit of an insight into that? You know, how new is it? What does it look like? And why have you got this strong belief that it's not obviously the silver bullet, but it's a big part of the um, solution? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I think, you know, it needs to be said straight up that electrification is probably the best solution in most cases, but it's not the solution in all cases. Unfortunately, it's not a silver bullet either. Uh, And there are those harder to abate sectors or or hard to electrify sectors where we need to come up with other solutions, other creative, clean solutions. Hydrogen is is a great candidate because it uh, has a tremendous amount of energy uh, and and it can um, be consumed in a very, very clean way. Um, Its negative aspects are that it's a, a... very, very low density chemical, which means that um, from a volumetric perspective, uh, energy to volume ratio is is rather low. Um, that's one of the reasons why we look to hydrogen derivatives, uh, i.e. you combining the hydrogen molecule with another molecule in order to change the composition and, uh, and make it much easier to handle and transport uh, and, and, and makes the model a lot more viable. As far as technology goes, um, 
a lot of these technologies have been around for a long, long time. It's just that we haven't needed to use the hydrogen in the way that we use it today. So we're trying to develop new technologies to overcome those issues. Um, like, for instance, uh, hydrogen has been produced uh, for hundreds of years um, using uh, steam methane reformers or, uh, or other um, methods of taking methane and, and turning it into a hydrogen product. Uh, that's all very well and good. It's cost effective. However, it does have a very high carbon intensity. So looking at a, a way that you can uh, produce hydrogen with a very low carbon intensity is, is one of the things we're trying to develop at the moment. Technology does exist to convert electricity and water into hydrogen and oxygen, which is how you make green hydrogen. Um, however, it is rather costly and uh, you are sacrificing some of the renewable uh, electricity um, that you're generating in order to make hydrogen. Um, you can also use uh, methane again with the carbon capture, but there's problems with that as well. Uh, there are still um, some emissions that go into the air. So these are some of the problems on the front end that we're trying to solve. And then on the back end, you know, you've got how do you transport it? Um, if you're transporting it as a derivative, how do you reconvert it back into a hydrogen? Or how do you consume it in its derivative form? And these are things that we're trying to develop solutions for. As you say, Jenny, it's probably only around about two years that the world has really been focusing on this and trying to find ways to solve these problems. Um, you know, when you look at cars we drive or, or phones we speak on, those things have come a hell of a long way from the uh, the models that we first uh, encountered way back when. And, and I have no doubt that hydrogen will be able to make that same progress after that time has been afforded uh, for that learning process. Yeah, and I think actually there's um, one of our previous episodes, as the first episodes of this series, featured Vaitia Cowan, one of the co-founders of Inapta, who is looking at that very problem, the electrolyzer problem, and how do you make that viable as a solution globally, but also they have very small units that are, that are stackable, so they can make it much more affordable than it would be for the historic gigantic electrolyzers and compare it to the supercomputer to the desktop pc i guess the same kind of thing that we're talking about is that advancement over time from the the mobile phone i remember my dad having when i was young that was essentially a suitcase to the smartphone that we play on today yeah and and the, you know there's a lot of different creative solutions that people are coming up with. Do you make it bigger? Do you make it smaller? Um, is it a centralized model or is it a decentralized model? It, uh, you know, it goes to what are you using the hydrogen for at the end of the day? If you're using that hydrogen to fuel trucks um, that are going long distances where batteries aren't really viable, maybe a small hydrogen unit is, uh, is, is suitable for that because you can make hydrogen almost on demand as you need to refuel uh, and, and, and it services that need. Um, other uh, models look at, okay, where can I produce hydrogen um, for the most cost-effective, um, uh, sorry, in the most cost-effective manner around the world and how can I get that hydrogen to where it needs to be? Um, either to carry energy so that I can produce electricity at the other end where I can't produce electricity uh, very readily normally 
or to uh, to be used as a fuel. Uh, and in those circumstances, you need a, a larger unit and you need to turn it into a derivative for the transportation. And that's kind of how you arbitrage between, let's say, North Africa and Europe, for instance. And talking about the fact that this technology is, well, as you say, not necessarily new, but the, the uses are new, given that we're so early in that journey, if you're looking ahead, is there things that you could say, you know, we've been successful if by this point in time it's it's kind of mainstream yeah i i think i think maybe the the crux is not really so much around the technology i think the technology is probably the easiest um thing to overcome it's the infrastructure um because right now uh, you can use hydrogen um, to f- for steel production to to refine DRI, for instance, or or for heating um, to produce glass or, or various other things in industry. Uh, you can use hydrogen uh, in a fuel cell to produce electricity, um, and uh, and similarly, you know, you can use hydrogen and hydrogen derivatives uh, to to power engines, um, although. Uh, you know, some engines are still in development, but those are quite near-term technologies that should be available to us. Um, the issue is how do you make it readily available so that it can be a viable model? Um, Europe is investing in the hydrogen backbone. Um, the US uh, already has hydrogen pipelines uh, in the Gulf, uh, and, and that's a fantastic example for the rest of the world to follow. Uh, import locations and export locations are being developed around the world. Uh, vessels to ship these um, chemicals uh, are, are also being built and developed. Uh, and uh, cracking technology is being developed, uh, which is a, a key component uh, to the viability. Um, and that's basically, once you convert it into a derivative, you need to um, reconvert it back to hydrogen so that you can get the most bang for your buck. Um, so all of these things are equally uh, integral in the success story of hydrogen and um and 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 those are the the main items i think that we need to overcome if we have a viable infrastructure by 2030 and i think there will be uh pockets of viable infrastructure that have developed by then well then i think you have uh, a ready platform in order to move forward from and uh and, and start a user case uh, without that viable infrastructure, well, then it's very, very hard um, for uh, broader adoption to occur. I realise I just asked you what seemed like a very simple question, but had a very complex answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's okay. It's, it's, it's often the case with, uh, with these hydrogen puzzles, to be honest with you. But that's actually, I guess, kind of it is demystifying for for so many people. It's one of those things. It's it's hard to get your head around all aspects. So having you explain it in that way is actually super helpful of, you know, you have the technology, but often that isn't the limiting factor. And I think that is the case here is often the supply or the infrastructure or even the kind of centralized versus decentralized discussions that go on. So there's lots of lots of factors. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's not uh, hydrogen alone that has those challenges. Uh, if we want to reach the goals for electrification of a lot of the uh, um, things that we, uh, we operate today, um, I believe in the UK, uh, the, uh, the power infrastructure needs to be upgraded by a factor of four. 
Uh, and in the US, it's a factor of eight, I believe, uh, just so that we can charge our cars, heat our homes uh, and, and, and everything like that from electricity. Um, and that is without uh, increasing the production profile as well. So, I mean, there are very, very large advancements that need to happen across the board uh, in every single country around the world for us to get to a more viable model that, you know, hopefully means that our children will be able to enjoy the same kind of world that we grew up in. So, yeah, it's it's a very, very complex problem, but we've got some very, very smart people around the world and very passionate people around the world who are working on it. So, um uh, that that gives me a little bit of heart that uh, we we might be able to accomplish something there. Yeah, and I think I saw um, in the news this week that we've hit eight billion people on the planet this week, and that number's not going to go down. So I think it you you touched on something there that actually leads me on to a later question, but I'm going to bring it in now. Was about the the smart people, um, and this is often a topic that comes up on this podcast is around. How do we get the best of the best working in this sector? Because if we don't solve these problems, then as you say, our kids are not going to have the, the world that we've had the fortunate kind of nature to, to be in and their kids certainly won't. So how do we go about attracting them and what sort of individuals do we need in this space? Uh, we, we need individuals from all types of um, professions and uh, and with all sorts of expertise. You need technical people who can solve the uh, the engineering problems. You need people who are experienced with uh, with finance to uh, to be able to push these things forward and and and, uh, and and make them financially viable. You need people who are experienced with markets to help design um, the way these commodities are going to flow and, and trade around the world. And and you need people who were um, uh, very, very familiar with, with government uh, regulation and policy to be able to navigate um, how governments are laying out those incentives and, and inviting investment and and, uh, and trying to incentivize things forward. So, you know, there's a very diverse range of skills um, that are required in order to solve these problems. And, the, I mean, the last thing, you, you just need uh, inventive thinkers as well. Um, traditional avenues for, for solving problems are, aren't the way to get it done. Uh, and we can't rely on technology and innovation alone in order to solve the problems. That's going to be a big part of it. Um, but we also need innovative thinkers uh, to try to creatively overcome some of these challenges that we have in front of us um, and, and make it viable so that we can move forward. Um, I, I think... As far as attracting people, you're you're going to get a lot of people who are attracted to this space naturally um, because they want to contribute to something larger and they want to do something good for the for the world. Um, that's one of the reasons why I came across. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people have families to support. A lot of people have um, certain incomes that uh, they're used to. Uh, and let's face it, uh, the increased cost of living is affecting everyone across the world. So uh, incentives for those people to come across matter as well. And I think as we see more investment in these sectors and as these businesses grow, the incentive for people to come across um, and, and also be paid well for doing so um, will be there. Um, it, it's about uh, letting that evolution happen 
but but you know certainly the the more hands the merrier uh, in order to try to help this transition along yeah i couldn't agree more and actually you mentioned something there about investment and i think one thing that people forget actually that a lot of the investment firms and funds around the world are are crying out to invest in this um but there's a real lack of commercial viability of what's happening and it's companies like PA but also those people within the the end users who need to have that finance mind to make sure that we can get commercial viability in order for the investment firms to invest but that money sat there ready it's just a case of making sure that that all the ducks are in a row to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I was talking to someone um, the other day about why aren't we getting that that kind of money flowing into the the projects um, where, where it's needed, and it, and it's just all about um, controlling the risk. You know, you you still have big risks uh, on technology on. Um, commercial viability, these markets don't trade yet, um, as well as various other things. Um, I mean, scalability too. I mean, you know, we, we hear that there's a 50 gigawatt uh, project announced in Australia or in the Middle East, something like that. Well, that's all very well and good. But today, the largest project in operation is 150 megawatt, uh, and that's in China. Um, and, and that was built without um, finance, by the way. Uh, so, you know, it's a massive leap and it's a big risk for those banks to take on, um, especially when you're talking costs. I mean, these are billions and billions of dollars. And even if you syndicate that amongst 10 banks, it's, it's still a hell of a lot of risk. Um, so, yes, they want to be in that space, but, but they, can't, um, they can't stomach that risk right now. And, and, and you can't really blame them for that. You know, one thing that has been suggested is rather than governments um, supporting uh, projects directly um, through uh, through subsidies or, or through funding grants or whatever, um, they should instead underwrite the risk so that banks can go out and, and finance all the projects, but they've got a little bit of a safety net beneath them. Um, and, 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 and that's perhaps a better way to get these things moving along. Um, but, uh, but yeah, certainly access to funding is a big problem for all these project developers. And that's something that we try to help them with, um, trying to, uh, get them commercial agreements so that they've got something to go to a bank with and, uh, and, and get some non-recourse financing and get their project going forward. Excellent. And speaking of going forward, actually brings me through to my last question is about looking to the future for you and for PA, like, what do you... What do you see over the next few years? I never ask too far because this industry is just too weird and wonderful to know. But, you know, if you're looking three to five years down the line, what would you like to achieve? I mean, you're absolutely right as far as a rapidly developing timeline. This is such an exciting sector to work in right now because of the flux and the changes that are happening all around us. So it's it's a bit tough to try to predict that, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, I think uh, we're going to hopefully see more projects um, pass FID and get financing and start to be built. Hopefully we see markets um, showing glimpses of starting to trade and, and, and moving towards a more liquid model. Hopefully we see more governments adopting more proactive and aggressive 
um, uh, policies to try to encourage investment and and, and uh, use it, usage. Um, certainly, you know, we, we had one uh, region in the EU uh, doing all of the paddling uh, maybe about 12 months ago. Now the U.S., has jumped in and, and someone gave me a beautiful quote the other day. They said, the US often arrives late to the party, but when they come, they bring the beer. Uh, and that's what they've done in this instance. <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a challenge to other countries to say, hey, come and match this. Um, because right now, all of the investment is going uh, stateside. And, um, and, you know, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see a good response there. Um, uh, in Japan and Korea, we're expecting some policies to be announced over the next uh, 12 to 18 months as well. So hopefully that's also going to have a, a, a positive impact on the uh, demand side. So, um, yeah, uh, I, hopefully it's a positive outlook and uh, and we see some progress. But, uh, yeah, I think as we said earlier on in the call, um the only thing we know for sure is uh, what's true right now is not going to be true in around about 12 months time. I like that. It's exciting. And I think never have we seen such fast progression of any kind of market or technology in history. So we're really living through something for the first time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this is a pivotal time for uh for the world and uh, one that um, I think history is really going to remember. So it's a privilege to be part of it. Well, it is also a privilege to have you on Conversations in Clean Tech. So thank you for your time and your insights and your wisdom. And we certainly wish you the very best on solving some of these problems. Thank you, Jenny. It's a pleasure to be on and um, all the best to you. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Clean Tech, brought to you by Brightsmith. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others to find the show. For more information on how Brightsmith can help you to build a sustainable future through identifying, attracting, and retaining diverse talent, please head over to brightsmithgroup.com. Join us next time for more Conversations in Clean Tech.